0: If you're standing on a threshold, if you feel a yearning to tap into your greatest potential but you're caught in that fuzzy in-between space of the now and not yet, don't despair. You're being invited to pivot with greater purpose. You're on the thrilling edge of becoming. You are being called to unleash your soul song. I'm Becky Fleischer, and I believe we're all born with a gift that's uniquely ours, our very own soul song and I discovered on my own journey that when we unleash it into the world, man, does it make life sing. You might express it through writing, science, cooking, nursing, teaching, or some other endeavor. The song is different for each of us, and its expression can change throughout your life, but it can only sing when you're in tune with your truest self. I know you're trying to get things in focus, that you're looking for encouragement and practical tools to illuminate your own personal journey, and that's what you're gonna get here. I'm excited to travel this road with you. Let's get going. Welcome back to another episode of Unleash Your Soul Song. I'm your host, Becky Fleischer. Still recording outside of my studio. I was able to get my microphone stand though. So hopefully this audio will be a little more consistent for you today than it was in the last episode. Thanks so much for sticking with me on these shows when I haven't had my stand, when I haven't been in my studio. You know, recording in a closet produces a much different audio quality than what I'm used to, but I am glad it's all working out, and I really appreciate your feedback on those first two shows for 2021. I would be remiss if I didn't give a huge shout out to your fellow soul seekers who shared their silver lining reflections with us in episode 21, No Plans, No problem. You may have seen on my Instagram that recently I heard someone say that acknowledging our strength and the fact that good can be found even in terrible circumstances allows us to move forward and plan for better days. And that's exactly what your fellow soul seekers provided for all of us in that episode. So if you haven't given that a listen, I highly recommend it, especially if you're looking for a little uplift. I promise you it will deliver. So thank you so much to those soul seekers who participated and thank you to everyone for listening and sharing how much that episode meant to you. Now the last episode, not the silver linings episode, but the one immediately before this one, it seems to have really gotten people thinking and it got people talking and I'm not surprised at all because we got into a big one in that episode, putting our heart before our head. And that's a toughie, you guys, because the very idea of making your head second, it revs up our ego, sending our brain into hyperdrive to gather up all the data and all the evidence that will make the case for staying firmly in control. And it's honestly our nature to yield to that. So I get it. I really do. One of your fellow soul seekers brought up a really interesting dilemma, that I wanted to explore a little bit at the top of this show. And that's how to reconcile the differences when you're in a group of people who are very heart-centered. It seems that everyone in the group is heart-centered, they're heart-forward, they're heart-led, and yet there's this fundamental disagreement. They presented it as tricky because if you don't lead with facts and figures and information-based evidence to make your case, like the headfirst people do, how do you move a group forward if they don't agree and if that agreement seems to be stemming from their heart? And I loved this question. It really got me thinking and reflecting on the many times I found myself in this exact scenario as the chair of a few different nonprofit boards. When you're in an environment that's by nature a little more heart forward, or it should be more heart-forward, like a charity group, a church group, a volunteer organization. You know, the assumed posture is heart-based. And I say assumed because I don't think it's always heart-first. I think a lot of ego does get in the way, but I think that's the general premise. And so it's usually right at the moments when that kind of conflict hits a group like this, that someone, cough, cough, guilty party right here, (laughs) might say something along the lines of, we have to start thinking more like a business, <laughs> right? How many times have you been in a group—a volunteer group or a nonprofit group—and someone says that? I oh, yeah, totally guilty. We all know that's just really code for "stop being so damn sappy and sentimental." You know, stop up that bleeding heart for a second and get down to the facts and figures. You know, get get into the head. And here's what I've learned in those situations. People who are very, very heart centered and heart led, they can actually resist head tools. And that's a problem. It's just as problematic as it is for very, very head centered and head led people to resist the heart. There has to be a balance. There has to be a point of integration, a point of and. More on that later in the show. But before we take off on that theme, let's wrap up this exploration. So let's say that the group is pretty good at balancing the head and the heart tools, but they're stuck. Enter Don Henley's, when they Try trying to get down to the heart of the matter. Okay, there it is. Your first clue is that the head is still leading somewhere if you are in fact still stuck. It can be really difficult to discern heart knowing from head knowing. It takes a lot of practice, a lot of embodiment, things that I'm still working on myself and more of what we're going to talk about in today's show. But what has always worked for me every single time I've been locked in a group dynamic like this is getting really, really clear about who we are there to serve. If you start to peel back that onion, you can usually find the sticking point because service, true servant leadership, true service to others, isn't about the head at all. I can recall very specifically when I was working through a terribly hard situation with one organization that I was on the board of, the organization was, I mean, really, we were on the edge of failure. And everyone agreed that wasn't what we wanted, but agreeing on how to avoid it, oh, as they say, the devil is in the details. What a mess. I won't make this a case study in pulling organizations from the brink because that kind of work doesn't happen in an instant. That can be summed up in one podcast episode. But what I can tell you is that there was one instance when clarity hit like a thunderbolt and it broke the logjam. When we got clarity around who we were there to serve and why, oof, I remember the moment. Talk about an energy shift. We all felt it. It was palpable. And not that we always agreed on the how, but we were lock solid on the why, and that allowed us to move forward. There was a lot of head involved, a lot of head involved. And when we really peeled back, peeled back, peeled back, peeled back, back, got super clear about who we were serving, that's a heart issue. And that's when we all got aligned. So we got our hearts really clear and we moved from there. And that's the only way we could have done what we did, which was save that organization, we really did. Heart first, then we employed our head tools. Now it can get really tricky, especially in organizations and groups because at any given point in time, your answer for who am I here to serve can be different. On a really micro level, when it's just two people and you're locked in a disagreement, you can easily see that you can ask, how can I serve this person? that I'm locked in disagreement with. That can help you get to your heart. That can help you move from the heart. What needs aren't being met in this conversation with this person? In organizations, you're often serving many different audiences. You know, in a hospital, for example, you have to serve the patients, but you also have to serve your doctors and nurses and staff, as well as your community at large. In schools, you've got students and teachers and parents Organizations have stakeholders, and at different times, you have to serve different stakeholders, often at the same time, which is why organizational capacity is so important. You know, going back to that Peter Drucker quote in the last episode, this is why good management is so important. Management. The head is in charge of doing things right. But the heart, remember, is about leadership, doing the right thing. Because at the end of the day, if you aren't super clear about your purpose either personally or in an organization, the be all end all what service this organization is here for, then you're gonna have a problem. You'll be doing the wrong things and no amount of doing those wrong things right, no amount of smart headspace, will get you where you need to go. It's not enough to clarify purpose in your head. It's got to be lived through your heart or it will get really foggy and lost from being covered up by all the layers of stakeholders and needs throughout the organization or throughout your life. So I loved thinking about this one. Thank you so much for asking the question. I hope this helped expand on our theme of heart first, head second, and how it can apply in different situations in our lives. Another soul seeker sent me a quote and asked my thoughts on it as it relates to this idea, heart first, head second. And this is another good one because it sets up today's topic so perfectly. So here's the quote they sent to me, one we've all heard. Maybe it's been said to us or we've said it ourselves. And again, guilty party here. I have definitely said this probably in those same meetings when I said we need to start acting like a business. Anyway, the quote I think we all know is, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So let's talk about Intentions. It's usually a word we hear a lot at the turn of a new year. And I have to admit that I've never been drawn to setting an intention for the year, you know, making a list of goals. You got it. That goes without saying. But intentions? Ugh, no way. That felt way too squishy to me. Remember, this is a recent transition that I've made from head to heart that I am still making very much. So, yeah, intentions, there was not enough action orientation for this project manager. That's not to say I didn't set intentions before I took action on things. I've always done that. Making sure before I take a big action on something that my intentions were coming from the heart. But again, I was working in the wrong order. Letting my head lead by formulating the action and then doubling back before I would hit go. And I would say to my heart, hey, we're good with this, right? We're doing this thing the right way. And in that order, I can see how the road to hell is paved with good intentions because the intentions of the heart aren't leading. The intentions of the head are, but let's keep going on this. So I already had a resistance to setting up intentions for the year. And then a few years ago, I heard people talking about choosing a word for their year. And that one, I really didn't understand until this year. When a word that has been chasing after me for a few years sunk into my soul and demanded to be lived that word is and let me tell you a little story about how i arrived here and then i'll get back to why i chose this word and what it means to me so i came into 2021 in a very different mindset than how i've entered most years usually over the winter break i take the time to make Plans for the coming year. But as we wound down 2020, I found myself too busy with some really great studio projects. And quite honestly, I just felt overwhelmed mentally, emotionally, just physically. It was the end of the year, a hard year, a long year. I was done. So I just didn't have it in me to sit down and hash out plans. That's why I kicked this year off with that show called No Plans, No Problem. And if you want to hear more about why I believe that, you can head back to that show to get up to speed. But luckily, I did have some downtime over the break, and instead of making those annual plans, I sunk into a book that I've been itching to get to called Everything Belongs by Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan priest who founded and runs the Center for Action and Contemplation, and this book is about contemplation. Now, you may be familiar with the word contemplation, but perhaps not totally clear on what it means or its practical application. Contemplation is the act of looking thoughtfully at something for a long time, deep reflective thought. This can be literal, you know, visually gazing upon something as an exercise to clear your mind and to ponder just that one thing. Or it can be that you're holding a thought in your heart and sitting with it that way. There are so many different forms of contemplation. Meditation, mindfulness practices, breath work, journaling, yoga, walking or sitting in nature, prayer, even getting lost in music or art can be a form of contemplation. So the word contemplation comes from the Greek word theoria, meaning a passion and dedication to understanding the nature of reality. And many people, myself included, would say that a regular contemplative practice has helped them develop personal and spiritual awareness and has given them access to the space of inner silence where the whispers come from, the divine space of inner wisdom, our highest wisdom. And I can say that contemplation has been the single most powerful tool I've used to come back to myself. It's been the flashlight on the dark road, the guardrail that I could trust to keep me from falling over the cliff sides where the path got narrow, the thing that keeps me evolving to the edge of becoming because it grounds me in an inner wisdom and an inner knowing unlike anything else ever has done for me. So the Greeks knew contemplation as the passion to understand the nature of reality, or truth with the big T as some of us would call it, And if you look at the various forms of contemplative practice, they all invite you to sink into a non-egoic space, to get out of your head. That's the whole idea. Get out of your head, get into your heart. So it's really the tool for changing that order of operations that we've talked about. Instead of being head-led, being heart-led. So in this book that I read over the break, there's a chapter called Ego and Soul, and it starts off with this line. The contemplative secret is to learn to live in the now. Pretty good opening statement for a chapter on the ego and the soul, because if you've ever tried meditating or if you've taken a yoga class or sat in deep prayer or just took in every sensation of the sun streaming on your skin, then you know that this statement is true. It's so clearly the purpose of it all that Eckhart Tolle titled the book after it, The Power of Now, because the only reality is now. So later in the chapter, Richard Rohr expands on this a little bit more. And I would like to just read it to you because to me, it kind of sets everything up. So he says, to live in the present moment requires a change in our inner posture. Instead of expanding or shoring up this fortress of the I, the ego, which culture and often therapy try to help us do, contemplation waits to discover what this I consists of. What is the I that I'm trying to shore up and expand? Who is this self that I take so seriously? To discover the answer, we have to wait and observe. That's what happens in the early stages of contemplation. We wait in silence. In silence, all our usual patterns assault us. Our patterns of control, addiction, negativity, tension, anger, and fear assert themselves. That's why most people give up rather quickly. Contemplation is not, first of all, consoling. It's only real. Ooh, I loved that because I do think that in today's culture, we think of yoga, meditation, mindfulness practices as being these blissed out, harmonious, zen-like states. And I love the fact that he pulls the rose-colored glasses off here and says it. Contemplation is not first of all consoling, it's not. First of all, it's hard. (laughs) Like he says in the statement, first thing we do is wait in silence. There is no immediate gratification here. (laughs) There's no instant feedback mechanism that we're all so used to. There's no like buttons or people giving you hearts for sitting in meditation or praising you or giving you accolades. Wisdom doesn't just come descending upon you. The first thing we do is wait in silence. And beyond that, in that silence, our brain starts attacking us. You know, our ego starts to go into crazy mode of, oh, no, 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 no. I don't I don't like this back seat. No, no, no. I need to be in the front seat. And, you know, this is uncomfortable and you have things to do. And, oh, you don't want to feel that feeling. And that's, oh, you should be afraid of that. It starts to assault us. All the things that we've been burying deep down, it's going to pull up and use as a weapon against us. I remember years ago, a very dear friend of mine who was trying yoga for the first time, she told me she sat down the first time in, in yoga and they, you, know, you sit and you have to do the silent meditation. And she said she had to get up and leave because she burst out crying. Her mind went into immediate assault mode. Like, whoa, wait, what are we doing here? No, I don't like this. And so it's going to do whatever it can do to get you out of it. So First off, it's not consoling, right? It's real. It's going to bring up some of your own issues. And then contemplation also brings up other issues outside of us. It doesn't allow us to bypass what's real, what's harmful, what's unjust in our lives or in the world. True contemplation, eventually with steady practice, does just the opposite. It gives us the ability to stay present to what is and meet it with wisdom, compassion, and courage that we've cultivated in the depths of our soul through contemplation. It reminds me of something Sue Monk Kidd writes about in The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. In it, she says, There have been so many things I hadn't allowed myself to see, because if I fully woke to the truth, what would I do? How would I be able to reconcile myself to it? The truth may set you free, but first it will shatter the safe, sweet way you live. Oh, yep, Sue Monk kid going straight, going straight at the belly of the beast the way that only she can with her words. Indeed, I think this is what keeps a lot of us stuck right where we are, that fear of shattering the safe, sweet way we live especially if we're quite content with how we're living. Though the truth is, if you can hear a whisper calling from your soul, there has to be some part of you that's discontent with the status quo. Doesn't matter though, because it's still just as frightening to surrender to whatever might arise, whatever might need to be unraveled, or whatever we might need to unlearn. But let's go back. Let's remember what we talked about in the last episode. As we set up the order of operations as heart first, and then head in service. And just because you allow yourself to feel it all doesn't mean you have to do it all. And in his book, Richard Rohr puts a fine point on that idea by telling us that as contemplatives, we first stand in vigil, and then we act from that more spacious place. Although sometimes we choose not to act or not to act now. And that is so hard. It sounds like a nice permission slip, right? Oh, I don't have to act or I don't have to act now. But dang, I'm sorry. That's still hard. Not acting, that can be hard too. But what's even harder, I think, than that permission slip to say, okay, we're standing vigil, we're taking it in, we're opening the heart space. I get that. And then we act from there. One thing that trips me up a lot is how do we know? How do we know that our actions or our inaction or our delayed action, whatever the case may be, how do we know that that's really coming from that heart-centered, spacious place that contemplation helps us rest in? How do we know that the ego isn't sneaking in there? How do we know that it's really inner wisdom, that it's something coming from the divine? How do we know we can trust that? I don't know about you guys, but I've had some pretty heavy duty conditioning to not trust that, to not seek or trust my inner wisdom. How I was raised in the Catholic church, you needed only to trust the priest, the Pope, the rules of the Catholic road. And I'm not saying this to disregard religion at all. I think religion is important. I'm grateful for being raised as a Catholic, but I honestly don't recall receiving any kind of instruction for how to sift through the true self that is connected to the divine from the small false self of the ego. I don't even remember that ever being a conversation. I'm not even sure I ever heard the word ego until I was in college. So how could I have ever have been taught to differentiate, to discern? So that's something that has really tripped me up as an adult and saying, I can't trust this inner wisdom. How do I know that this inner wisdom is anything to trust? But a good test that I've heard, and one that rings very true from experience, is that you can tell if you're living in your false self, the head, when you take some form of personal offense. When you feel bitterness, resentment, the need to find fault or to place blame, to justify or explain, then you're not really operating from that heart-centered, spacious place because you can't offend the true self. And I'm not talking about the kind of indifference our ego throws up, you know, oh, who cares about that? Or who cares about that person? They're not even worth my time or that's not even worth my time. Those are just defenses. That's very clearly a defensive posture. What I'm talking about is feeling it all. Oh yes, it is worth my time and that person's worth hearing and I'm going to see it fully for what it really is. And it can be horrible or hard or sad or maligning or inaccurate. And I'm going to take this action or I'm going to not take action or I'm going to wait to take action. And I'm totally settled with all of that. I don't harbor resentment. I don't harbor anger or angst about it. I feel calm and peaceful about it. Feel how much space that takes up. Did you hear all of those ands? So instead of, oh, who cares about that? That's not worth my time. Boom, boom, quick, shallow. Versus, yeah, I'm going to feel it. And I'm going to see it. And I'm going to hear it. And I can believe that these things are this, that, or the other. And, 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 and. Which brings me to my word of the year, which is and. It sounds like such a simple word, but man, it packs a punch. Finding that point of and really pushes me. It pushes me out of binary thinking, either or thinking, which I think is dangerously becoming the default posture of most Americans and our national conversation. It pushes me to reframe situations and my interpretation of those situations, and it stress tests my ability to hold multiple truths at once. It's kind of like being on a stretcher. It's the exercise that I'm using this year to build my spiritual muscles so that I can really sink in and swim strongly in the deep waters of life. In that book that I read over break, Everything Belongs, Richard Rohr talks about the need to include and transcend. When I read those words, that's when the power of that little conjunction, and, really landed for me. Because the power of the and has been swirling around me for years now, and I've been resisting it. I'll give you one example that centers around the word that I consider to be the opposite of and, but. If and is expansive and inclusive, but takes away. You know, I just said this thing, but now I'm going to put some rules around it or take part of it away. That's pretty much what but indicates, right? When you hear that word. So as I've been working in partnership with my bandmate, Peter, he has sent me into spiral after spiral when we've been communicating with people in our business, either in an email or a proposal or what have you. Anything in writing. And anytime... I would have the word but in there. He would want me to take it out and reframe the sentence so that we didn't have to use that word. And it drove me crazy, absolutely crazy. I would argue that we had to use the word. Sometimes it was necessary. How would we make ourselves clear? But no, (laughs) he wouldn't relent. And you know what? He was never wrong it does pain me to say it. (laughs) He was never wrong. Despite my protestations about rewriting it, it always sounded better once we reframed it. So I recommend if you want to see the power of this one word, and, catch yourself using its opposite, but, and force yourself to reframe without it. It's not easy. So that's one small example of how that word and has been dogging me for years. I could really feel it swirling around and the expansiveness of it. I could feel it swirling around as well. So when I read that formula for transformational growth, include and transcend, I knew I had my word because without the and, this formula doesn't really deliver. We can't transcend by throwing out the old or dismissing the whole of a situation. We can only transcend by sifting and recognizing what's substantial, what's real, what's worth keeping and maintaining and what isn't. It's the sifting and sorting that allows us to include and transcend. And when we're going through major life transitions, major societal shifts, upheaval, discord, turmoil, all the things that get us stuck in the small, contracted, shallow end, we need the and. We must include and transcend to transform. And all of that requires a lot of expansive space. Now, as a project manager, I am really good at making room for things. Making room is a very task-oriented thing. To put it in simple terms, to make a room, You need concrete to pour a foundation, wood and drywall to create the sides, shingles to seal the top, boom, boom, and now you have a room. We make room on our schedules, and much like in construction, it's just a blocking game. I'm going to get up at 6 to work out for an hour, then I'm going to wake the kids and get them to school, so 7 to 8 is blocked. Then I'll shower from 8 to 9, so that time is blocked. Then from 9 to 10, I'll have breakfast and read emails, so that time is blocked. And so it goes. I could do a whole show on time blocking and how to be more productive getting shit done. In fact, I could probably make a whole month's worth of episodes on how to do that. And for some people, that information would be life-changing, and I won't discount that. Clearly, there are hundreds of podcasts that go into that exact kind of detail for a reason. But here's the thing. When you're on the journey to unleashing your soul song, simply making room isn't going to cut it. We have to make space. And again, that's where a contemplative practice comes into play. So let me pull back the pages of the calendar to about five years ago, before I really embraced the invitation to explore this path of becoming. And I'm gonna plop you down into a moment in time when I spoke with an astrologer. Now that might not be your thing, and that's okay. It was something that I did. It was something I found interesting at the time. It was a learning experience for me. My first toe in the water of kind of feeling how energy works in the world. She was giving me an overview of my chart and she told me that there's going to be this ongoing evolution of you that's going to be life changing for you. That it had already begun and that I had already been engaging with it, but that it's gonna go on for a number of years going forward and it's when I find my truth, and it's when the authenticity that was promised on my chart it's when it starts screaming to be heard demanding to be lived out and i remember she told me if you're up for it it will be an amazing ride and if not it's going to be horrible i remember you guys i was almost pleading with her saying I'm up for it. I'm up for it. I really am. I've been making room. I've been making room on my calendar to meditate, making room to do yoga regularly, to read books. But I I just feel so lost. How do I get on the ride? I didn't have that information in the book from Richard Rohr at that time telling me that contemplation is not, first of all, consoling, that there's silence, that the first thing we do is sit and wait in silence. I mean, to be honest with you, I didn't even know that contemplation was the name of the game. I didn't even know that that's what I was doing. So even if I had got known to look for some kind of roadmap here to tell me what to expect when you are on the edge of becoming, I wouldn't even have had the right terminology to go looking for the books. I didn't even know of Richard Rohr at that time. I didn't know of half of the people that I know of now at that time. I just knew that making space to meditate, to do yoga, to think, to go on walks, to be in nature... I knew that it felt right. I was following the impulses and the instincts of my body, and I was going with it, which is beautiful, which is how I think it can really start. That's usually how the invitation first comes, right? It's a small little whisper knocking, because the first thing you do, you sit in silence. You don't get that response. So when I spoke to this woman and she's telling me, I'm gonna, you know, you need to embrace it, and I'm begging her, I'm trying to embrace it. I'm making room, I'm making room. Right? I'm making room, I'm making room, I'm making time. That's what I really meant. I'm making time in my calendar to do all of these things. But what I can see now is that making room was only the first step. And listen, it was a damn hard one. I'm not going to discount that. Making room is a hard first step to do. It's important. It's just step one though. What I didn't know was that making the room would lead to the second half of the equation, which is about making the space. Now, and I've been engaging in that work for a few years now, and as we've discussed, this part isn't a blocking game. It's the opposite. It requires opening your heart in a new and very vulnerable way so that your mind starts to take its appropriate place as the loyal foot soldier that it's meant to be. It's there to effectively put into the world That which your soul has birthed and your heart has filtered. Your head makes the room. Your heart holds the space. That's where the greatest depths and the widest reach come from. That's where all the capacity rests. That's where the space is. Anyone who knows me knows I get shit done. I am a very good room builder. But I've been yearning for space my entire life. And ironically, for the majority of my adult life, when I got really head heavy, I resisted these avenues to help me make it. Yoga, introspection, self-help, even religion. At various points in my adult life, I poo-pooed them all. That's the universal pattern. That which we resist is that which we need the most. So how did I start to make that shift? How did I start moving from the first step, making room to do the thing, how that transitioned into more of a contemplative practice and making space, one quick example. So the only reason I started doing yoga was because it made my body feel good and look better, quite honestly, that's why. That Ujjayi breath and the meditating, nope, did not care, didn't care about that at all. People could sit there and do that all they wanted to, I just wanted to get to the super fast, hard flow where I could feel my muscles moving and stretching, and I felt like I got a good workout. If I landed in a class, or worse, if someone was a substitute for my teacher for my more of a a harder flow class, if somebody was subbing for her and they came in and did like a restorative yoga or a gentle yoga or some kind of meditative yoga, I, I honestly, I would be pissed at the end of class. Like that is where I was when I started yoga. I wasn't there for that. And so I chose my classes very specifically and it irritated me if it went another way. But here's the thing, if you do something long enough, things start to find their way in. And so it was the case with me and yoga. You know, if I had to sit there and listen to all these people doing the Ujjayi breath, uh, I might as well try it. And once I tried it, I actually liked it. You know, it was doing something for me. And before I knew it, I started looking forward to that noisy nose breath. And the longer the yoga instructor kept us in meditation at the beginning or end of class, the happier I was. And then lo and behold, I started going to different yoga classes, ones that weren't as physically rigorous, ones that intentionally kept you in meditation longer, ones that had a more gentle flow so that you could feel the contours of the inner part of your body, I started to change slowly. I didn't even know what was happening. I just knew it started to feel good. I literally started feeling lighter, not by body weight, but just in being. And that lighter feeling was carrying throughout my day. When I wasn't in class, I was feeling so much lighter. I had more patience with my kids. So, okay, all right, I was starting to come around. But I remember when I actually got it, when I actually felt it. I was in a class with one of my most favorite instructors who I hope to have on the show. And I was in Down Dog and she was talking all about making space and really expanding. And, you know, I'd heard those words hundreds of times before, you know, make the space inside of your body. I didn't know what she was talking about, but I would just still go with it. But she came over and she made one small adjustment to my shoulders and you guys, it felt amazing. It felt amazing. She had this lovely like light touch and it just, it felt magical, like magical. All of a sudden I felt inside of my body something shift and crack open not not physically meaning like a muscle you know it's not like a knot got worked out or something like that i felt this expansiveness that i had never felt before and she must have seen it because she said feel into all that space you just made and for the first time i embodied what it felt like to make space inside of yourself now I could tell you similar stories about my vocal meditation work that I've been doing or sitting in meditation or sitting in contemplative prayer, carving out this space to hold more truth, more love, more sadness, more beauty, more empathy, more voice, more light, more dark, more of everything because everything belongs. Contemplation has given me this gift. And it has given me the sifting tool that I need to include and transcend so that all that room that I'm so good at making is full of meaning and value. It is my greatest hope this season to bring experts in various forms of contemplative practices on the show. Everything might belong. But I do recognize that everything isn't for everyone. So I would like to explore a variety of things. Some that I've practiced, some that I haven't. I really feel that a contemplative practice is the underpinning of Unleashing Your Soul Song. Think of these practices like the weights in the gym that we use to build our physical muscles. These contemplative practices are the weights we can use to build our spiritual muscles so that we can tap into our inner wisdom, our heart, and move and flow from there. So I think that's all I have to say on the topic today, and I'm just gonna leave it there. Let that rest. See how it lands with you. Thank you so much for being here, for listening, for subscribing. If you got something meaningful out of today's show, or if you know someone who needs to hear this message, I would love it if you shared this with them. It's so easy to do an Apple podcast. Just look at the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. There are three dots in a row. Click on those dots and there's an option to share. You can text this episode directly to someone. You can email. It's that easy on Spotify as well. There's a little box with an arrow that comes out of the top. If you click on that, you can share via email, via WhatsApp, and you can even share to your Facebook and Instagram stories. If you do that, I would love it if you tagged at Unleash Your Soul Song so that I can thank you. And as always, I love hearing from you. Really, I do. It's what keeps me going with the show. There are some weeks, we all have them, when we're super busy and I think, I don't really have time to work on the podcast this week. I don't have time to think about a solo show or line up a guest or do the interview or do the editing and all of that. And just when I think, I'll just let it go for a week or two or whatever, One of you, every time this happens, every time, one of you will message me, you'll text me about the show. And it puts that pep back in my step. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and keep it coming. And until next time, I hope you all have a great week. And I'm really looking forward to this season. You and me, me, he and she neighbor, stranger down the street, chain, a chain, grab the clouds, cause we haven't even touched our highest ground, no we haven't even touched our highest ground, no we haven't even touched our highest ground. No, Unleash Your Soul Song is recorded and edited in 426 Studios, the music production company that I co-own. For more information about our music and our services, please visit www.four, the numbers 2, 6, studios, dot com. That's www.426studios.com.